Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. So yeah, it's a real joy to be finishing this series today. We spent, um, I haven't counted it, eight or nine weeks, I think, looking at the first four chapters of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome with this title, The Gospel, God's Power for Salvation. And we've been trying to get motivated and equipped in this year of mission we're on by asking why is it that Paul says at the start of this letter he's so eager to go to Rome and to preach the gospel to the Romans there? What's so good about this good news that means he's so desperate to go and communicate it to them? And we've been asking how can that help us learn about the need for the gospel and what the gospel is and how you and I can be sharing this gospel with other people. And we've seen that the answer to that question, why is Paul so eager to preach the gospel, is because he knows that this gospel is power. It's not just words, it's not just clever ideas, it's not just a nice story, it's power, power for salvation. And in that gospel, he says, is the revelation of the righteousness of God. God's character, God's saving activity, and a gift of perfection that God can give to any of us who respond to him. But he knew that before he could tell them about this wonderful good news, this great solution, he had first to tell them about the problem, the kind of darkness into which the light would come and would shine. We saw in Romans 1, he talks about at the root of all human sin, rebellion against God, is actually a failure to acknowledge God and to worship him, and instead a choice to worship created things. We ignore the creator, and instead we worship the created And therefore, God hands us over. He gives us over, abandons us to continue on the path that we started. And then in chapter 2, he turned to the people who think, yes, Paul, that's terrible, isn't it? Those people over there are awful for doing that stuff. And he turns and says, actually, you who are judging others, you're in just the same position. He says, actually, you, like every person, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, be judged according to your works, and you'll be found to be a sinner just as much under the the wrath, the just and right and fair condemnation and punishment of God as they are. And they go, well, maybe we've done some things wrong, but what about the fact we've got the law, we're circumcised, these things don't protect us, and Paul says, no, they won't. None of that can protect you. And he ends the middle of chapter 3, his really depressing conclusion of everybody is under sin. Everyone rebels against God. Everyone actually is deserving of God's judgment, of God's punishment. But then, in the context of the darkness, comes the glorious light of the gospel. In the middle of chapter 3, he talks about the fact that God of himself has provided a solution to this problem. He sends his son so that rather than us bearing the wrath of God, he bears the wrath of God for us so that we can be forgiven. He is a sacrifice. He's a, a substitute. He's the one who makes the way for us. He makes atonement. He pays the price for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. And then end of three into four, as John spoke to us last week, he talks about faith. How does that all get applied to us? It's by faith, by trusting in the promise of God, which is like reaching out and taking hold of the gift that God is trying to give us. And then we are deemed righteous. God looks at us as if we'd done everything we should have done, nothing we should not have done, and we are restored to perfect relationship with him, the relationship for which we were made. It's the gospel in these first four chapters, God's power for present salvation, that right now, right now, I can know that I am saved from the wrath of God that I deserve. But of course, Paul doesn't stop there. The first four chapters are only the first course of this letter. There's a whole number of 12 chapters that Paul goes on to talking. And what I want to do today is to encourage you to take up your Bibles and to read the rest of Romans, to explore it for yourself. 
Over the next kind of few weeks, many of us will have a little bit more hands on our, t- our time on our hands. We'll have maybe some time off work. We'll have just some times we're sitting, digesting some very large meals. That's a great time to pick up your Bible, to read maybe the first four chapters again, but then to read Romans 5 to 16 and discover what Paul goes on to say. And to help you to do that, what I want to attempt to do today is to give you a bit of a map or a bit of an orientation. Imagine you're all going to go off, you're going to scale a great mountain on your own, but before you go off, I'm going to tell you some of the paths, tell you some of the key landmarks to look out for, tell you what to expect as you journey. So this is about an equipping time together. A bit different maybe from some Sundays, we're getting equipped to go and read the Word of God ourselves. And I also mentioned I've written a kind of summary of this on the blog, on the website as well. So it's Romans, about a thousand words, which will guide you through as a map as you read through. And there's a few printed copies of that available at the information desk today if you want to pick one up to help you as well. So we've seen over these weeks that the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ, is at the very center, the very heart of this whole letter. And actually, each of the main sections can be told in terms of the gospel as God's power. We've seen in chapters 1 to 4 the gospel as God's power for present salvation. And then in chapters 5 to 8, we have the gospel as God's power for future salvation. In chapters 9 to 11, you have the gospel, God's power to fulfill his promises. And then in chapters 12 to 16, you have the gospel, God's power for transformed living. I want to quickly walk you through each one of those. That's the broad structure that helps you get the kind of big picture map of what's going on in Romans. Chapters 5 to 8 are the gospel, God's power for future salvation. Because when you get to the end of chapters 1 to 4, you're kind of left with some questions. One of the questions you think, okay, I know that Jesus died for me. I've trusted in him, and so right now he says that I'm forgiven, that I'm righteous, I have this right legal standing with him. But I will still have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ on the final day. How can I know, how can I be certain that on that day, he'll still say not guilty, he'll still stay righteous? How can I know this verdict will remain, it will still be there for me? And that's what Paul is answering in chapters 5 to 8. He talks about what life is like between salvation in this life and then being saved on the day of judgment and how what this life looks like helps us know with utter certainty that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be saved from the wrath of God. We will be found righteous. He starts chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's summarizing all of chapters 1 to 4, basically. Since we've been justified, put in a right legal standing with God, we have peace with him. Previously, there wasn't peace. There was hostility and enmity. There was anger from God against us. There was punishment deserved by us. But now there's peace. There's reconciliation. But what about the future? Well, he goes on. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He says, it's not just that God did something back then. It's that now you've been stood in the sphere of grace. Now, grace is God's gift given to those who are totally unworthy. It's given without regard for worth or status or anything about who you are. It's given because of the goodness of the giver. He says, now your whole life is lived in the sphere of grace. There's this constant shower, this constant waterfall of the grace of God over you. And therefore, you know that you will reach the end. We stand in this grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
The glory of God is one of Paul's ways of talking about eternity. We can rejoice now in the certain hope of that glory because we're stood in the grace of God. And in 5 to 8, Paul is explaining what does life look like when you're stood in the grace of God. Second half of chapter 5, he explains in more detail what's actually happened when you put your faith in Jesus, what it means to become a Christian. He says, all of humanity can be divided into two groups who are represented by two people. There's Adam, the first man, and there's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And we're all in one of those two groups. And the actions of those individual men affect the people in their groups. So those in Adam are affected by Adam. Those in Christ are affected by Christ. What the one man does affects the many. It's a bit like if you think back to when you were at school. This happened uh, in my primary school, certainly. If someone in your class did something wrong, but the teacher didn't know who it was and no one owned up, the whole class would get in trouble. The whole class would lose their break time, say. The actions of the one were affecting the many. But then if somebody owned up and said it was me, even if actually it wasn't them, everybody else got to go out to playtime, whatever it might be, and they took the punishment. The actions of the one person were affecting the many. Paul says that's what happens with humanity. We all start in Adam, in the group linked to this first man, the guy we read about in Genesis 1 to 3, or 2 to 3, in the Garden of Eden, and his actions affect us. And because he rebelled against God, He didn't trust God. He didn't live God's way. He was rendered a sinner and he was given the sentence of death. And because we start in his group, we are rendered as sinners and we are given the sentence of death. But then, Paul explains, through the gospel, God's power for salvation, we're taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, where his actions affect us. And so his obedience and his right living and his death are all credited to us. What happens to him is accredited to us and we are rendered righteous because we are connected to him. Paul says, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, those in Adam, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous in Christ. You see, God relates to Christians based on what Christ has done. What Christ has done will never change. How God feels about what Christ has done will never change. We are in Christ, and therefore that can never, ever change. And that means that if you're a Christian, you will be in Christ on the final day, and you can be utterly certain that you will be saved from the wrath of God. Because when you're in Christ, you can't hop in and out. You're not in Christ one day, then you have a bad day, and you're back in Adam, and then a good day you're in Christ, bad day you're in Adam. When you're in Christ, you are in Christ forever. Your salvation is certain. Your salvation is secure. That raises another question for Paul as we get to chapter 6. If I'm in Christ, I'm certain of salvation, can't I just do whatever I like? Why bother living a good life? Can't I just continue in sin, do whatever pleases me? And Paul basically says, no, that's absolutely, absolutely absurd. Shall we go on sinning? He says, by no means. Absolutely not. That is crazy. But why not? It's not going to affect your position before God. Why not just keep on sinning? Paul says, if you're in Christ, this is Christ, this is me, in Christ, then when Christ died, you died with him. And when Christ was raised to life, you were raised to life with him. And he explains that previously, sin was your slave master. And a slave has to do what its slave master says. They're under the power, under the control of the slave master. But when a slave dies... They're no longer under the power of their slave master. They're free. The slave master might shout at them and try and control them, but they have no power over them. 
Paul says we were slaves to sin, but we were in Christ and we died with Christ. That means we've died to sin. Sin no longer has any power over us. We've been raised to life to be slaves of God. And so sin can no longer control us, can no longer tell us what to do. It no longer has any power over us. And in fact, now we have the freedom to not sin. Christians, we are empowered and enabled to not sin, to live God's way, the way we were created to live, the way we will find true fullness of life, And so Paul says, it's madness to say, let's continue in sin. Why continue in that slavery when you've died to that slave master? But he also tells us this is something we have to step into. It's already true. It's already happened, but you have to reckon it. Step into it. Live it out. So he says in chapter 6, we don't live in sin because we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. You're stood, Romans 5.2, in grace. And when you turn to chapter 7, that raises another question. If we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, then what about the law? All this stuff God said in the Old Testament, those instructions, those commandments, were they bad? Were they the problem? Are are they sin? And again, Paul says, absolutely not. That's a crazy idea. He says, you're in Christ. And remember, being in Christ means you died with Christ. And when you die, the power of law is broken. When you die, you will no longer be under the law of this land. It will have no power over you. And so when we died in Christ, the power of the law over us was broken. It no longer has any right or authority to point the finger and to accuse and to make us feel bad and make us feel guilty because we have died to it. And as well as dying, we've been raised to life. And raised in newness of life. And Paul tells us, now we live life not by striving to try and keep the law. I don't guarantee my future salvation by trying to be a good person, by trying to keep God's law. We live God's way by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Him transforming us. Him working us. Him empowering us. So Paul says, well, so was the law the problem? Was law sin? Was it a bad thing? Absolutely not, he says. By no means. But sin... The problem, that slave master, took hold of the law. And it used the law. And it used the law to tempt us and push us off in the wrong direction. It used it for its kind of evil ways. But the law was always good. But it had no power. It couldn't. It can't help us change. Only God can do that. And so now we're free from the power of sin, free from the power of the law, and we're able to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's life in the Spirit which is how we know that we're saved. We know that on that final day, we will still be found not guilty. And so chapter 8, a wonderful, uh, famous chapter full of incredible truth, talks about what does life in this spirit look like? If life isn't abandoning yourself to sin, if life isn't striving to try and keep the law, what does it actually look like to be a follower of Jesus? It's life in the spirit. He starts the chapter saying there is no condemnation. Not one bit of condemnation can attach it to yourself because you are in Christ Jesus. And he says, For God has done what the law weakened by flesh, sinful flesh, could not do. What the law could never do because of sin of using it and using it, God has done. He's done it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, or as a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. He has done away with the guilty verdict. He's done away with the punishment. And the purpose is in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, to sin, but according to the Spirit. God forgives you. God declares you not guilty so that you might live his way. So that you might live empowered by the Holy Spirit the way he has made you to live. It's not abandoning yourself to sin. It's not striving to keep the law. It's being transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he says that those who do this, which basically means Christians, people who have the Holy Spirit, every Christian who has the Holy Spirit, are adopted by God as his children. Therefore, we have wonderful intimacy with God. Cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. We are uh, co-heirs with Christ and heirs of God. He says we're adopted by God provided we suffer with him, with Christ, in order that we might be glorified with him. Christian life now, life in the Spirit, is being adopted by God, and that means you will inevitably suffer. We often overlook this, but Paul says a key part of being a child of God is you suffer. And the whole rest of chapter 8, some of our favorite verses often, is an explanation of how you still know you're a child of God when you're suffering, and how therefore you know that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will be accepted and loved and embraced and welcomed in. He says that God has already proved his love. We look back on what God has done in sending his one and only son, and so we know with utter certainty that God loves us. And so we know that nothing, death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we know that nothing can stop him from saying that we are righteous. We are not guilty. We are accepted on that final day. So he says future salvation is guaranteed because life now isn't an abandoning ourselves to sin. It's not striving to try and keep the law. It's having God living inside of us, changing us, working us, empowering us. It's the gospel, the power of God for future salvation. You get to the end of chapter 8, and Paul could very easily at this point just go into the really kind of practical nuts and bolts of what does life in this spirit look like. And he will do that. But first, he inserts chapters 9 to 11, where he's wrestling with a really important question. We quite often easily overlook these chapters. We find them a bit confusing. We think they're not very relevant to us. But actually, the questions uh, Paul is wrestling with and the truths that he reveals are hugely, hugely important for understanding who God is. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's deeply pained, deeply upset, deeply moved. And why is that so? It's because, he says, of his brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You see, Paul was wrestling with this really difficult issue. Jesus had come as the Jewish Messiah, the one promised as the deliverer, the one who would fulfill all of God's promises to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and yet so many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries hadn't actually accepted Jesus as Messiah. They hadn't actually believed in him. And that raises huge questions about who God is. Is God not faithful to his promises? Or is God just not powerful enough to be able to be faithful to his promises? It was posed, the question poses a serious challenge to who God is, and that's why Paul addresses it. That's why it's important to us too. And these chapters, 9 to 11, show the gospel as God's power for the fulfillment of his promises. Why is it that 
Paul's contemporaries, the Jewish people, haven't responded to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Paul gives two answers. He kind of lays down two parallel tracks, and we would really struggle to reconcile them, to work out how do they go together. But sometimes the Bible says things. It says, this is true, and this is true. And to believe what God says, you have to believe both, even though you can't work it out. But that's okay, because God is God, and we're not, and we shouldn't expect to be able to understand everything that he does and everything he says. On the one road, he says, why are the Jewish people not responding to Jesus? It's because of God's choice, God's election. He says, not as if the word of God has failed. He shows it's always been based on God's choice. He says, go right back to Abraham, the guy to whom the promise was originally made, and it wasn't his oldest son whom the promise would go down. It was his youngest son. It was the child of promise. It was those whom God chose. He shows us that the Old Testament makes it clear that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he'll harden whom he will choose to harden. God chooses. And Paul knows that we might be tempted at that point to say, well, is that fair? That God chooses? God makes that decision, actually? But Paul says, who are we to challenge God? He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He knows that the living God is sovereign. He's ruling over all. He's the God who is high rule, who does, who can and does do as he pleases. And he says, God chooses who responds to Jesus. That's the one track that Paul puts down. But then he lays another track. As we go into chapter 10, he says the other track is human unbelief. People have chosen not to accept Jesus. The Jewish people in Paul's day are trusting in the law rather than trusting in Jesus. It's their own choice. It's their own doing. And he says that's despite the fact that the gospel has gone out. They've had the opportunity to hear it. The Christians have gone all over the known world proclaiming the gospel. It's not that the Jewish people hadn't had a chance to hear about the gospel and about Jesus. It's that they have chosen not to respond to him. Two tracks. It's God's choice and it's human choice. Paul says both of them are 100% true. And then as he wraps this section up in chapter 11, he says, well, does this mean that God has rejected Israel, his Old Testament people, those to whom the promises seem to be made? Again, he says, by no means, absolutely not. That's a crazy idea. God hasn't rejected them because he says God always said in the Old Testament there would be a remnant, kind of like a, a subset, a group within the group who would be saved by grace. And he even says, well, look at me. He says, I, Paul, am a Jewish Christian. I'm evidence, I'm proof that God has not given up on his people. And he explains that somehow what God is doing is purposeful. Somehow bringing the Gentiles into the people of God is going to make the Jewish people jealous and somehow it's going to lead to God saving many Jews. And as you get to the end of chapter 11, these chapters which are confusing, which are deep truths we can't fully get our heads around, Paul responds to that, not with being annoyed by God, not with trying to work it out and trying to be clever. He responds to mystery with worship. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable were his judgments, how inscrutable, kind of hard to understand his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There's so much to be learned, even from the fact that Paul says, I can't understand these things, and therefore I'll worship. <laughs> That's not what we do in the modern West. That's really, really challenging. 
So Paul has spent 11 chapters showing us that what God has done is this power of God for present salvation, for future salvation, for the fulfillment of God's promises. And now he wants to help us see how do we respond in day-to-day life. We know it's life in the Spirit, not abandoned to sin, not striving to keep the law. But what does it look like to live a life in the Spirit, to live the life that God has called us to? Well, he shows us that the gospel is the power for transformed living. Chapter 12 opens with the word, therefore. Such an important word. He's saying, because of all this stuff I've already said, because of all the truth that's been laid down, here is what you do. Here is how you respond. Christian living has to flow from Christian understanding. The imperative, the command, flows from the indicative, the the statement. We've got to understand what God's done before we know what we are to do. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or your rational worship. Right back in Romans 1, when humans were turning their hearts away from God, sinning against God, One of the problems was that they dishonored their bodies among themselves. Here, Paul tells us to offer our bodies to God. He goes on, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let it push you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Romans 1, the result of sin was that we as humanity became futile in our thinking. Well, here the gospel renews our thinking. It renews our mind. The gospel, as the power for transformed living, comes as a solution to the problem of sin that was in our lives. And Paul goes on to give really practical examples of what this outworking of renewed thinking, transformed living, looks like. All of them are focused around what we might call interpersonal relationships, how you relate to other people. Because you might remember, week one of this series, I talked about the fact Paul is writing, one of the reasons is there's this conflict in the church in Rome between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And so Paul is showing them how this renewed living from the gospel brings them into unity to live together as one. In chapters 12 and 13, he gives various instructions of what that looks like to live in unity together. Uh, with each other and also living under secular rulers, all of which are command, uh, controlled by the command to love one another. Because, he says, by loving one another, we fulfill the law. And then chapters 14 to 15, he tackles a very specific issue going on in the Roman church. He's not been there, but clearly he's heard some stuff that's going on. And he talks about two groups, the strong and the weak. And these guys basically had different ideas on how you live life to honor God. Not different ideas on how you get saved. This wasn't a a kind of entry issue. But this was once you're in the people of God, how do you best live your life? The weak felt that they shouldn't eat meat that had been offered to idols. So in the ancient world, most butchers were also um, people preparing meat to be sacrificed to pagan idols. And so some of these believers thought we shouldn't eat that meat because it's been sacrificed to pagan idols. They thought it was very important to keep the Sabbath as a separate, distinct, different day and various other things. Not because it would earn them salvation, but because they wanted to love and honor God in how they lived their life. Whereas the strong didn't think that those things were necessary. And this conflict was causing tension in the church. Paul seems to agree with the strong. He talks elsewhere about the fact there's um, no problem eating idle meat, actually, because we know there's nothing behind it and various things like that. But what he doesn't do is reason with them as to why they're wrong Actually, he calls them all to live in unity. 
He knows the important thing when these things are disputable matters is that they live together in unity. The strong shouldn't cause the weak to stumble. The weak shouldn't look at the strong and judge them. Rather, they look to Christ's example. Christ who didn't look to please himself, but looked to please other people. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's shown them that the gospel is God's powerful, transformed living, which will include transforming this tension and conflict in the church so they can live together in unity. And as we reach the beginning of the kind of close of the letter, the second half of chapter 15, Paul takes us back to some of the stuff he said at the beginning of chapter 1, talking about his plans, what he's going to go and do. His intention is to go to Jerusalem to drop off some money, to come to Rome, and then to go from Rome to Spain to go and preach the gospel well. And he ends chapter 15 with a simple prayer, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And we read that and we think, wow, 15 chapters, he's finished. He's come to an end. He's rounded it all up. He's finished it all off. But he keeps going. There's one more chapter that Paul puts on the end, chapter 16, where he begins to address members, uh, individuals in the church in Rome. Another chapter often gets overlooked. It's a list of names. One of those chapters, if you do a kind of, you know, uh, read the Bible in a year kind of reading plan, you get there and you kind of groan and moan and maybe skip over it or read it very quickly. But actually, there's lots for us to, be, uh, to learn here. And actually, lots for us, I think, to learn about how we apply Romans, which is where I want to uh, land it today. First thing to notice is there's a huge variety of people in this list. There are men and women, couples and singles, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, but all of them are part of the church. All of them are part of the people of God. They are a wonderful opportunity to express the unity of the gospel that Paul has been talking about. But what's also really striking is not only are they all very different, but all part of the church, but they are all playing their role in the mission of God that Paul is talking about. He talks about some as fellow workers. Some have hosted churches in their houses. Some have worked hard for you. Some are fellow prisoners with Paul. They're workers in the Lord. They've worked hard in the Lord. All these different things are telling us that all these people, even though they're all different from different backgrounds or in different situations, all of them had a part to play in the mission that Paul was involved in, in the sharing and the proclaiming of the gospel that he spent the last 15 chapters talking about. And the same is true for us today. All of us have a part to play in this mission. Romans, 1, uh, Romans, we know from chapter 1, when I talked about that, is a missionary letter. This was written in the context of mission. I want to preach the gospel in Rome and then in Spain. I want to come to you to be missional, to proclaim this gospel. And the explanation of the power of the gospel is there to help us think about mission, to help us understand why he's so eager to preach the gospel. But chapter 16 is put on the ending. It shows us that that isn't just for Paul. It's not just for him. It's not just for the apostles back then. Or it's not just for people who do whatever it might be, different elements of what it might be that Paul did of speaking in the marketplaces or planting churches. It's for every single one of us. Every single one of us has a part to play, has a, a role to play. We're all different. There'll be amazing diversity in this room. We're all wired very differently. Different characters, different personalities. We'll all find ourselves day to day in different contexts, with different connections and people, with different opportunities, and yet all of us have a part to play. And you'll have a part to play which will be unique to you because of how you are unique, how God's made you, and the unique situations and contexts into which God has put you. 
So the way I want to close this series on Romans is by laying down for you the challenge to wrestle as you read the rest of Romans yourself, but then to wrestle with what is God calling you to do in his mission? What is your role in helping more people know about this glorious gospel of God that we've learned about? We've learned about it, we've heard about it, and now it's time for us to take it up and us to play our part. How can you become a fellow worker with Paul and with countless generations of Christians who've come since? How can you earn that designation of one who's worked hard in the Lord, doing the Lord's work? It's now our turn and our time to go with the gospel. And I just want to take the last couple of minutes we've got just to let us individually engage with that. I'm just going to pause for a moment, just for have a minute of silence in this moment, just for us to pray individually in our heads, to ask God to speak to us What is my role in the mission of God? What context have I got? What connections, people I know have I got? What opportunities have I got so I can get caught up in the mission of God that Paul has talked about? Let's take a few moments to quiet each individually to do business with God, to think about that, and then I'll pray that God will help us in that. Father God, we thank you for the glorious gospel, what you have done in your Son, that is the power of God for salvation. Thank you, it's the power of God for present salvation. Right now we can know we're saved. It's the power of God for future salvation. We can have utter certainty you will save us in the final day of judgment. It's the power for you to fulfill your promises. We know that you're good. We know that you're faithful. We know that you will do what you said you'll do. And it's the power of God for transformed living, that we might live in unity together, that we might live out the life of the Spirit that you've called us to live. And we also hear, Lord, the call of Romans 16, that each one of us has a role to play in proclaiming this gospel, letting the world know about the God who loves them, who sent his Son for them. And we just ask, please use this series. Please work in our hearts to stir us to action. Help us to see the context, the opportunities, the ways that you want us to play our part. You want us to get involved. And oh Lord God, we say, please, would you let much fruit come and would you glorify yourself through the power of your gospel being known in Hastings and Bexhill and right across our area. Come and use us in that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.